0: Well, you can take your Bible and turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, I am about 25% preaching through Ezra and Nehemiah just so we can get to Nehemiah 8. It's one of my favorite chapters in really all of the Bible and I think you'll see why because it uh, hits one of my favorite subjects. Dr. Walter Kaiser is one of the theological giants in the field of Old Testament studies. He wrote this. The church and the scripture stand or fall together. The church and the scripture stand or fall together. And he goes on to say that either the church will be nourished and strengthened by the bold proclamation of her biblical texts, or her health will be severely impaired. It is no secret that Christ's church is not at all in good health in many places in the world. She has been languishing because she has been fed junk food. All kinds of artificial preservatives and all sorts of unnatural substitutes have been served up to her. And his diagnosis is that as a result, the church suffers from what he calls theological and biblical malnutrition. I think that's an accurate assessment of the church today. This is a very important topic because our faith is based solely on a God-given book that reveals a Savior sent by God. And our passage this evening in Nehemiah 8 focuses intensely on the relationship between God's people and God's word and how that relationship plays out. The term people is used 12 times in this passage, 8 times or 10 times rather the phrase all the people. So there's a definite push toward this togetherness of all the people. And then you have the, the word book used four times just in the 12 verses we're going to look at this evening more like a written document or a scroll, but the point is is that we could easily call this message the people and the book, because that's what this is about. Or if I could put it in New Testament type terms, if the people are the church and the book is the Bible, it's very appropriate using Nehemiah 8 as our guide for the gathering of God's people to hear the book to be called a what? A Bible church. Right? That's the book and the people together. And I would state strongly my agreement with Dr. Kaiser that the church and the scriptures stand or fall together in that when a local church stops honoring the Scriptures as the sole and supreme and only authority and begins pandering to people instead of honoring God, and that's where the switch flips. Every church says we love the Bible, but they only truly love the Bible if they're, if they're trying to please God and not trying to please listeners and not trying to please people. But when that switch flips and the church begins pandering to people, worrying about what people think, instead of simply honoring God, then the church in many ways has ceased truly being the church. Why is that? Well, because the people and the book go together. It's a a unit. And when the book is de-emphasized, the people suffer and go astray 100% of the time. There's no such thing as a solid church that has gone astray from the Word of God. You have believers that become more and more languishing in their faith and more weak and anemic and in need of spiritual bolstering. And the problem is, is they don't see it coming. And then the next generation thinks that's normal and the next generation thinks that spiritual anemia is what Christianity is. They've lost sight of the gospel and now you have a church filled with 90% unsaved people who love going to church because of all the perks that come with it. And it doesn't take long for that to happen. And that's what happens when you go off track. A, A church, very rarely as a local church, stands up as a whole and all of you look around and say, wait a minute, somebody needs to be preaching here. No, we're sheep and we get led down whatever path the shepherds lead and so the book and the people go together now the irony and it's a glorious irony that i have found as a preacher of the word is that if i will work hard to never try to please you as people the people who are here are the ones who ought to be here does that make sense and there's, a, there's a great temptation by preachers to try to make people happy. But instead, you preach the word and you let God do his work. And uh, I've been preaching long enough to see somebody get a scowl on their face, stand up, pack up their things, and march right out the back door. I've seen that enough. I'm not surprised anymore. I just kind of, well, see ya. You know, hope you find some place that you like better. The people and the book go together. Deemphasize the book, you hurt the people emphasize the book you help the people now we're deep into Ezra Nehemiah now we've been using this book to show the great faithfulness of God and every message I've preached through here we've listed one aspect of God's tremendous faithfulness his faithfulness to his own promises and his own people and tonight I'd like to look at the fact that God prioritizes the preached word God prioritizes the preached word now why is this an example of God's faithfulness because, as we'll see, the people of God in right relationship to the Word of God experience tremendous benefits. Sanctification, cleansing, conviction, life changes. Great, tremendous joy. Most, if not all of you, already know this by experience. But Nehemiah 8, 1-12 provides a living example that's really stunning to see. Now most of the rest of Nehemiah focuses on the people and their covenant renewal with God that's coming down the road. In chapter 7, the chapter previous here, we've seen that decades after the return from exile of about 50,000 people, 42,000 Jews plus servants, it's taken almost 90 years or so to complete the wall of Jerusalem and to turn the city now into a habitable city again. And so now we reach this momentous occasion that the people of God have a a yearning to hear the word of God. They have a desire to be unified at the foot of what we would call a pulpit, a centralized location to hear preaching. And this is just a beautiful text. And I'd like to use this text this evening to try to accomplish two goals. The first goal is I want to talk to you about how to listen to a sermon in four steps. Now you're going, well, I'm here. I don't need to hear that. But I think we always need to hear that. How to listen to a sermon in four steps. And my second goal, and we'll spend a little bit of time on this, is how to view Bible preaching. How to listen to a sermon and how to view Bible preaching, those are key elements to your walk with the Lord. And I think we'll see that as we go through this. I know for many of you, this sort of uh, thing is a review, but I always find it helpful to be taught the basics again because I think that we need that sort of reminder. So first, let's talk about how to listen to a sermon in four steps. Step one, we'll call congregation, as in gathering together, congregation. Nehemiah 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they said to Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh had commanded to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could understand when listening on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it from before before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were attentive to the book of the law. Now we're not told why the people gathered as one man. In verse 1, to hear and understand the book, meaning the law of Moses, That the situation at hand had likely put them in a position of spiritual readiness, of humility, of pliability, of softness. They were the reproach of all their neighbors who had tried desperately to stop them from re-inhabiting Jerusalem. God had restored their security in spite of all the opposition from aggressive peoples all around them. God had restored their security in spite of traitors and foot-draggers and unspiritual men even in their own midst. God had given them a leader in Nehemiah to lead them through this dark and scary time to the hard-won victory of finishing the wall of Jerusalem, hanging her gates to make it officially a fortified city once again. And so at this juncture, for reasons unexplained in the text... The people gathered together and they requested that Ezra, their God appointed teacher, bring them to the Word of God. Just a minute ago I said it's very unusual. You don't ever see a whole church standing up and saying, wait a minute, we want to hear the word. But that's what happened here. They requested this. Ezra seven verses six through ten shows that Ezra was their, their teacher, and they request, come preach to us. Now this is very important timing wise they had just completed the wall of jerusalem 6 days earlier when you compare the dates of nehemiah 6:15 and here in chapter 8 verse 1 it's just 6 days later and the emphasis here in these opening verses is on the unity of the people the people clamoring to hear the word of god this desperate hunger for the word And so they gathered south of the temple on the eastern side of the wall by the water gate. There was a plaza or a square there specifically for large gatherings. And so in response to the people's request, Ezra brought out the law, the Torah, the the Pentateuch in more modern vernacular, Genesis through Deuteronomy, this five-volume book of God's law and containing God's covenant with Israel. Now, why is Ezra the one doing this? Just as a reminder, Ezra... Uh, 7 verse 10 tells us about Ezra. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to practice it and to teach his statute and judgment in Israel. Ezra had spent years dedicating himself to learning the word of God. We did a whole message on that verse when we were in Ezra. Here in verse 3 are two and three, actually, it says that men and women and all who could understand were gathered together. This means children old enough to grasp the details of the Word of God. They gathered to hear the book. And so the prerequisite for being there was that you had an understanding mind. You were able to grasp what was being said. And Ezra read the law of God. Genesis through Deuteronomy from early morning, literally in Hebrew, from the light, meaning the dawn, until noon, Six hours of reading aloud the word of God, the law of Moses. And the text says, at the end of verse 3, all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. This is a figure of speech to mean that they they were listening carefully. And I think this is important to remember, none of them had a personal copy of the law. They couldn't just say, well, I'll read it later myself. For many of them, this was the first time they had ever heard the law. For some of them, it would be the last time they ever heard it. And so in God's master plan as the master teacher of the universe, the basic core of the covenant is given in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments. It's repeated in Deuteronomy 5. So they heard the Ten Commandments twice, and they heard the various 600 plus outworkings of the law, uh, 600 laws giving the day-to-day outworking manifestation of those Ten Commandments. They heard it all at once. And I've thought about this. I've read Nehemiah 8 more times than I can remember. And I've been tempted to see what this is like, to set up a reading of the entire Pentateuch in the church with different people coming up while the next person uh, recovers his voice. Apparently Ezra did this whole thing himself, maybe with some help. I'd love to see just what it was like and what kind of impact it would have. To be honest with you though, I don't know if we possess the hunger and desperation for the Word of God that this people had because every one of you owns multiple copies. Every one of you can read it anytime you want. So I wonder what it would be like to know that the Word of God is going to be opened and that's it. That's your opportunity. This does remind us of a very sweet scene though. One of my favorite scenes in all the New Testament is in Acts chapter 20 when Paul was in the city of Troas. Acts 20, verse 7 says that the believers in Troas gathered on the first day of the week. This was their Sunday gathering, the Lord's Day. This is one of the ways we know that the early church very quickly made the Lord's Day their primary gathering day. And Paul began preaching to them. And Acts 20, verse 7 says, He prolonged his message until midnight. That brings a tear to my eye just to think about that. And the church was crowded into an upper room. This was a designated gathering place in a large home in Troas. And when it got dark, they lit lamps and they just continued listening. And in fact, one young man was crowded in to sit on a, on a windowsill and the preacher's worst nightmare happened, sinking into a deep sleep. And the poor young man named Eutychus fell out of the third story window and died. And as if this happened every day, Paul stopped, went downstairs, raised Eutychus from the dead, ate a snack, and then went back up and continued preaching. Like it's just kind of routine. Oh, it's the raise the dead break from our preaching time and we'll continue on in 20 minutes. And he preached until the sun came up. There's an interesting little contrast here. By the time Nehemiah 8, 1 and 2 is finished, the word of God will have been proclaimed from sunup to sundown. And in Acts 20, Paul proclaimed the Word of God from sundown to sunup. What does that tell me? As a preacher, any time is a good time to preach, right? Both of those events demonstrate what true hunger and yearning for the Word of God looks like. For me as a pastor, those are the customers we serve, so to speak, Never do we try to make preaching palatable to those who are only mildly interested or even disinterested. That's a, that's a dead-end road. That's impossible. You cannot make those who are mildly interested in the Word of God interested by trying to make them happy. You make them interested by hitting them between the eyes with the Word of God and let them make a choice. If the Word of God is to do its work, it can't be edited, it can't be softened, it can't be shortened, it can't be abbreviated, it can't be abridged. It can't be made so-called culturally relevant. It can't be made something that's more understandable. The Word of God with the Spirit of God, with a preacher from God, is fully understandable. And who am I as a preacher to say that I need to edit God's Word to make you as an unbeliever or a very new believer understand the Word? You can't do that. You let the Spirit do His work. And did you notice what the unifying factor with the people was? The unifying factor, the thing that brought them all together as one man in unity and solidarity. It was the preached word. It was the word of God proclaimed. It it wasn't, come find yourself at our church. It wasn't, come gather in a community of love or come be accepted by others like you or come occupy, this is literally from a website, come occupy a safe space where everyone is accepted. No, no. The unity was gathering, congregating to quietly and humbly and for hours and hours hear the word of God together. And that focus filters out all the other noise that would threaten to distract the church of Jesus Christ. But now the text gives more explanation about what it took to make this gathering happen and how the people prepared for the reading of God's word. How to listen to a sermon in four steps. Step one, congregation. Step two, preparation. Congregation and step two, preparation. Verse four. Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasaiah on his right hand, and Pedaiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadnah. Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Now the wall has only been completed less than a week earlier, and yet they, meaning all the people, or at least representatives of them, built this large wooden platform for the, the reading and the teaching of God's law. It was large enough for at least 14 men to be on the platform together. Everybody needed to be able to see Ezra. Why? Because if you can't see him, you won't hear him. They didn't have these glorious sound systems like we have now. They had to see him so that they could hear him as he read from the law. And these lay leaders who are listed here, they're standing with Ezra in unity and in solidarity with him. And did you notice what the people's attitude toward the reading of the law of God was? When Ezra opened the first scroll, all the people stood up. There's no record here that He told them to do it. They just did. And then at some point, either before or after the reading of the law, the people humbled themselves before God in worship. Verse 6, Then Ezra blessed Yahweh the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. Now, this is not a time of hand-raising found in so many modern-day churches they have no clue what the spiritual context of hand-raising in the Bible is. This is not hand-raising in an emotional, musically-inspired, manipulated moment. This is, and consistent with nearly every other Old Testament instance of hand-raising, this is a moment of contrition. This is a moment of humility. This is a moment of desperation. This is a moment of, my hands are empty and only you, God, can fill them. And it's part of one bigger motion. This is not, and I've heard sermons on this, this is not a a, a bunch of people jumping around, smiling and laughing and, and waving their hands around. It's one big motion. Their hands are going in the air in the motion of bowing to the ground and laying on their faces before Almighty God. So they were prepared. What did their preparation look like? First of all, they were functionally prepared. They constructed and created a worship space that had as the central feature a platform for the reading of God's word. This would certainly have taken funds which were likely collected by the people to get the necessary materials. So not only were they functionally prepared in a place that was built to hear the word of God, but they were also secondly spiritually prepared. They came gathering in an attitude of humble worship. Listen, you don't have that kind of response to the Word of God by surprise or by accident. You have that response to the Word of God because that was how you were preparing your heart long before you ever arrived. They were ready for the Word of God to penetrate their minds, to penetrate their affections, their hearts, and to do its spiritual work on them. As a pastor over the years, I've had the privilege of occupying the pulpit. I have found that by and large, many believers don't prepare themselves spiritually to hear the Word of God. That it's it's something that you come on uh, kind of accidentally. But I don't really blame the church for that. I would lay most, if not all, of the blame for this at the feet of pastors who teach to pander to short attention spans, who teach to pander to expectations of an entertaining short message and the desperate goal of pleasing people, which never works, by the way. All, you might fill an auditorium by pleasing people, but it's simply you're filling an auditorium with unsaved dead souls. Instead, the people of God should be hearing sermons that initially make them say, Whoa, I was not ready for that. Now, why is that so important? Because next time around, they'll have the natural inclination to do what? To get ready to be more prepared. Okay, I didn't know. I mean, I just thought they had free coffee. They had a bookstore, kind of a cool looking building, at least on the inside. Outside a little weird looking. But, um, so, but But I got here and I had no idea I was going to be hit with truth. I had no idea that the word of God was going to take my heart and cut it open in 15 places and leave me bleeding. I need to be more prepared. The natural inclination at that point then is to get ready, which means to be in the frame of mind, to be flooded with truth, flooded with grace and the glory of God in the Word of God. And that preparation, it takes prayer, it takes determination, it takes discipline, it takes developing a habit of insisting of yourself that you will not waste an opportunity to grow in the Lord. I think Christians ought to listen to every sermon as if it's the last one. The last one you'll hear on this earth and grab every grain of truth you can. There's a natural progression here. How to listen to a sermon in four steps. Step one, congregation being together. Step two, preparation. Step three, we'll call concentration. Concentration. Ezra is reading the law and in some way, many trained Levites are now helping the people understand the law. Verse 7 also, Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jezabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, were providing understanding of the law to the people while the people stood in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, explaining and giving insight, and they provided understanding of the reading. So, here's the scene, as best as we can... Kind of put it together. Ezra is reading, perhaps taking a break every once in a while. And then these men are moving through the people, gathering them in, into large groups, reading more or maybe rereading parts of the text, key sections, and explaining the law, preaching to them what it meant. This is very important and, and it's this is meaningful to me personally. As long as I have the privilege of being in the pulpit in Christ's church, I will continue to remind Anyone who will listen, that listening to a sermon is not a passive activity. It is not something that is passive on your part and active on my part. It's an active event in which your preparation enables you to engage in concentration, to listen intently, to listen with resolve. And, and this is very important because I've seen believers who listen to more sermons than I can count. They've listened to sermons for decades and decades and they haven't grown Why? Because it's going in one ear and out the other. They're not concentrating. A sermon is not an IV drip. It is a trip to the gym. There's a big difference. Concentrating is largely a lost skill in the church. And again, I would place much of the blame on unfaithful preaching. I place the blame on preaching that tries to make everything easy. It tells the listener to sit back and relax and I'll just spoon feed you some baby food and it'll it'll slip down nicely without you really knowing it. And you can train a church unknowingly to think that listening to a sermon is kind of the relaxation time. It's my down time of the week. No, it should be the, the sharpest moment you have. Instead... Preaching must challenge you. It must provide new information every single time. It must accurately reflect the heights and the depths and the glories of the Word of God. I have a personal rule for myself. I will not preach a sermon where I haven't learned something new. That's not a hard goal to attain. This is the Word of God. So learning something new is not difficult. And I have noticed something in the ministry... The believer who is used to one easily swallowed, short, entertaining sermon per week, or maybe two or three a month, can hardly stand the thought of doing more than that. It's overwhelming. And while simultaneously, The believer in Christ who has disciplined himself to prepare and to concentrate on the glorious truths being exposed begins to have a hunger and a thirst for the word and his capacity to concentrate, listen, his capacity to concentrate grows over time. I have loved so many times seeing the progression of new members at Grace Bible Church. You you have the the, the day one uh, new member or maybe their first time here and they kind of have this look. You know, like, what's going on here? And either they, if they don't come back, they didn't want a part of that. But if they do come back, over the course of time, their panic gives way to determination and you see them beginning to grow and the dots begin to connect and they begin to be able to open their mouths wider for more of the life-giving water of the Word. This is why we desire every Lord's Day at Grace Bible Church to be like a mini Bible conference every week. That's, that's our goal. We want you to go home filled to overflowing with truth coming out your ears and more importantly, coming out in your life. That's what needs to happen. but That takes concentration. That brings us to the fourth step. Step one, congregation. Step two, preparation. Step three, concentration. And the obvious one, step four, application. Application. The first three serve no purpose without the fourth step of application. Verse 9. The Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who provided the people with understanding, said to all the people, this day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. The word of God did have a powerful effect on the people. They were cut to the quick. They were sorrowful over how they had broken the law of God and violated their their covenant of love with Yahweh. Can you imagine for six hours sitting and listening to all the ways you violated covenant with God? Of course, they're weeping. They're, They're convicted. But Nehemiah reminds them that this was a holy day. In fact, it was to be a day of rejoicing. This was the first day of the seventh month. And the law of Moses addresses this. Leviticus 23, beginning of verse 23 Yahweh again spoke to Moses saying speak to the sons of Israel saying in the seventh month on the first of the month that's this day you shall have a rest a memorial by blowing of trumpets a holy convocation a gathering you shall do no you shall not do any laborious work but you shall bring an offering by fire near to Yahweh and so what we see is that this was to be a day of rest and the rest was accompanied by the extensive hearing of the word of God Sacrifices were offered according to the law, both in Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29. And Nehemiah says, this is not a day of weeping. This is a day of rejoicing. Now, just to be clear, there was to be a day of grieving, a day of sorrow, that is the day of atonement. But this was not that day. And so at first they misapplied the Word of God, but Nehemiah patiently corrected them and they they responded in verse 10. Verse 10. Then He said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to Him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And what is it that they're celebrating? What What is there to rejoice about? What is there to be so happy about? Verse 12, Then all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate with great gladness because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Now that is a day. They hear the Word of God all day long. It's explained to them and then they have a feast all evening together. That's a glorious day. A truly glorious day. They're rejoicing in what? That the Word of God had been read to them and explained to them and they understood it. Now, although their grief was misplaced as far as the day was concerned, they were correct to respond with humility when the Word of God exposed their sin. And what effect would this have? Well, we have New Testament words we're more familiar with. In New Testament terms, we would call this a a sanctifying effect or a cleansing effect to bring about greater obedience to the Lord because the Word of God had been brought to bear in their lives again. Congregation, preparation, concentration, application and isn't that what brings us joy as a church body together isn't that the core of our joy together is to hear and understand the word of god the discipline of congregating after having prepared spiritually then concentrating on the richness of the word of god applying this heavily aggressively and proactively to our lives that's a church that's experiencing the joy of the lord together that's what we say from Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The proclamation of the word of God resulting in application of the word. Now, I said I had two goals this evening. First, how to listen to a sermon in four steps. And you might have figured this out if you've been at Grace for a long time. Um, once a year, somewhere, I fit in a how to listen to a sermon. sermon. And so I got it in for this year right before the end of the year. I want to finish our time together just giving you a list, seven ways to view Bible preaching. Because it, it, the way you view Bible preaching is everything. It, it is absolutely the, the life-changing factor. I, I know there's lots of jokes about Bible preaching. I know there's lots of jokes about the, the preacher who, who preaches too long or that they put a big clock in the back. Now, we do happen to have a clock in the back, but I requested it. It wasn't James going, hey, you're really going long here, so you need to kind of... Um, tone it down. I've heard all the jokes about preaching and preachers and none of them are funny to me. Because either it it betrays a really ineffective preacher or it betrays a congregation that doesn't really like to hear preaching. So none of them are funny to me. How do you view Bible preaching? Let me give you seven ways. View Bible preaching with unity. With unity. Verse 1 They gathered as one man. There's unity. It's been my observation as a minister of the gospel that disunity in the body, difficulties and conflict in the church disrupts the preaching of God's Word. And listen, Satan is incredibly good at this and he's creative in the multiple ways that he does this. A broken relationship within the church which distracts you during the preached Word. A gossipy comment overheard about leaders in the church or perhaps even about me as your pastor which now all of a sudden casts a shadow of doubt on everything you hear. A conflict over any... Area of secondary functioning in the church which is now more consuming to you than actually hearing and absorbing the Word of God that you're thinking about, you know, I can't believe they put that table right in the middle of the walkway there. I, I can barely get to the bathroom and that's, and that's all you can think about. And you're writing in your sermon notebook, I can barely get to the bathroom. And you're like, why am I saying that? Why am I doing that? Instead of hearing the Word of God. Oh, Satan has a thousand different ways to distract you through disunity. Satan loves disruption and by the way, with our sin natures, He doesn't always need to help us. that sometimes we can just do that on our own. And that's why we, we so deeply pray for and yearn for unity. And listen, there's a, there's a cycle. Preaching brings unity and unity empowers preaching. Does that make sense? And so you view Bible preaching with unity. There's a second way to view Bible preaching and that is with priority. With priority. Every single person had dropped everything they were doing that day. And in fact, the implication is that it took several days to prepare for what was basically an all-day Bible conference followed by a dinner. And this is just, this is just common sense, and yet it's just not followed so often Until the Christian makes the preached word a massive priority in his life, he'll continue to stagnate. He may even continue to to drop back in spiritual strength and effectiveness. And as a pastor, I deal with these all the time. Pastor, I'm just feeling dry in my faith and my my prayer life is just kind of eh. And and I'm not reading the Bible much and I'm I'm struggling with about 18 different sins right now and I'm I'm really just depressed all the time and I'm kind of anxious and this and that and this and that. and, And you start to diagnose this. Well... Where are your priorities? And sometimes people will be surprised when I don't start off talking about their Bible reading or their prayer. I want to see their calendar. Where are your priorities? Where are you spending your time? How many times have you been in church in the last 12 weeks? Oh, five times. Okay, where are your priorities? The most effective way to hear the preached Word of God is sitting next to God's people. There's greater concentration, there's greater accountability. There's a greater sense of urgency conveyed when we gather together. And I, I know when, when COVID hit in, in 2020, that we were forced to do a lot more online than we used to, and I understand that there are some even older, older members who have difficulty physically getting out, and we understand that, and we're thankful for uh, the ability to minister to them, even remotely. But as a general principle, somehow I think that Nehemiah 8 would lose some of its power if verse 1 said, 75% of the people gathered and the rest caught the podcast later. It just loses its power. When you're here, you can't yawn. By the way, in God's providence, I always see you when you yawn. It's just the way it goes. But I don't take it personally um, because I I know that that work is hard. But there there is an accountability here, right? That we're together and you're seeing other people who are, who are listening to the word of God and if somebody is sitting there playing a game on their phone, the nine people around them are going to go, don't do that. They're going to point it out. You view Bible preaching with unity, with priority. And how about this? View Bible preaching with urgency. With urgency. Verse 3 says all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. The the Hebrew is more direct. All the ears of all the people were toward the law. It's the idea of listening carefully and and being intense in in your listening. This is a word picture of not wanting to miss a single word. Not wanting to miss any of it. I know how difficult it is to concentrate for one one hour long sermon. Six hours, possibly 12, depending on how you interpret some of the timing here. But these are life-giving words, like a, like a rescuer shouting to you how to get yourself out of a dangerous situation. You hang on to every word. And Why is this so important? I, I don't want to be blunt about this, but you're dying. You're dying. I'm dying. The great Puritan pastor Richard Baxter was known for saying that I preach as a dying man to dying men. You're dying. You're mortal. You're finite in this world. You need all the Bible you can get. There's so little time to live for Christ. There's no time to mess around with sin. View Bible preaching with priority. Here's a fourth way view Bible preaching with quantity. With quantity. Six hours minimum of reading and hearing the explanations of the Word of God. This is a spiritual feast. I'm going to tell you something that might seem controversial, but in my survey of the New Testament, I do not see in the New Testament a pattern that most mature, truly strengthened and strong believers in Christ, I don't see a pattern that these believers, the ones who are most effective for the Lord in terms of their sanctification, their holiness, their own gospel witness, their, their preparation for the gospel, their, their being all in for the gospel work, The New Testament does not seem to indicate that these reached that level of maturity by hearing one sermon a week. I don't see that. The early church met every day. Troas listened to Paul all night long. In church history, the greatest churches and the greatest believers were constantly soaking in the Word of God. That has always been the case. John Calvin preached the New Testament on Sunday mornings. He preached the New Testament or Psalms during the Sunday afternoon service. And every other week, he preached every morning of the week from the Old Testament. So he preached approximately nine to ten times every two weeks. His lighter week, where he's only preaching about three times, he would use to prepare for his heavy week where he preaches six or seven times. You view Bible preaching with quantity. There's a fifth way to view Bible preaching With dignity. With dignity. The people stood when the Word of God was read. There was an inherent sense of of weightiness, of dignity, of the majesty of the Word of God. I think this is so lacking in many churches today in in an attempt to please people, in an attempt to be cool or hip and to present the Word of God as as some sort of self-help book. So again, I place the blame at the feet of shepherds. Because if you want people to have a sense of weightiness, dignity and majesty with the Word of God, then you have to preach the Word with weightiness. You have to preach the Word with dignity. You have to preach the Word with a sense of majesty and glory. You have to engender that attitude in God's people, a sense of awe and wonder and mystery that you are meeting with the living God because we have opened before us His very words. And yes, to meet together with what I think is the Most lost concept in the church in America today, a sense of fear. Just because Jesus came to earth as a man does not mean we are relieved from the duty of fearing God. And no, fear doesn't mean merely to respect. It means to be terrified to the soles of your shoes. It is a terror of a holy God. Yes, a God who loves us and has been gracious, but we don't ever lose that. How do you view Bible preaching? Here's a sixth way. With humility. With humility. The people bowed down to the ground because of the Word of God. Now why would we view the preached Word with humility? Let me answer that question with several questions. Why should God tell you anything? Why should God reveal anything to you? Why should God show the way of salvation to you? Why should God illumine his truth in a way to thrill your soul why should god ever take one moment to give you revelation from heaven there's only one answer and that is because he's gracious and i think it behooves us to never forget that god chose to put you in the path of preaching that explains the very mind of god revealed in scripture and that is an act of grace and I know some of you have come to the preached Word later in life and I've had conversations with some of you and, and there's a sense of, of even anger, righteous indignation. Why am I 40, 50, 60, 70 and no preacher taught me the Word of God at as, as deep a level as is possible? We come with humility though. One more way to view Bible preaching and that is with receptivity with receptivity to be receptive the people responded to the word of god they were put in their place by the word of god and get this they were gladdened by it they were gladdened by it i saw an ad uh, that a church was looking for a pastor and they had a big long thing about what his preaching was to be like Um, it's not to be offensive we don't want you to hurt anybody's feelings. We want you to be gentle. We want you to be kind. I understand the kindness part. But it kept on going to basically to say, don't teach us anything that's going to make us feel bad. Could I say this? That is precisely the opposite of what a preacher is to do. You open the word of God. And if it makes you feel bad, you were wrong. And the word of God was right. It's that simple. Yes, the preached Word causes grief. It causes tears and the conviction of sin. And what I love about these people is that they were, they were hammered by the Word of God and yet they rejoiced in it. They rejoiced in this. But the Word of God also causes joy because when you hear the preached Word, you've communed with God. You've experienced what the, the men on the road to Emmaus Did not our hearts burn within us? And what was happening when their hearts burned within them? Obviously, they're walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, but what was He doing? He was preaching to them. That's why their hearts burned within them, because the Word of God came alive. What joy we have. If you will view Bible preaching properly with unity, with priority, with urgency, with quantity, with dignity, with humility, and with receptivity. I want to back up just for one moment and talk about the with humility part. I think the greatest danger in the classic Bible church, the church that boasts, if you want to call it that, of verse-by-verse exposition, of being theologically minded, of trying to teach and train at at a high level. The biggest danger to you is that you get filled up with knowledge and what does the Bible say knowledge can do? It puffs you up, right? Never ever, ever, do you get to a point where you are beyond needing to hear the preached Word. Well, I've heard this topic before. I understand the doctrines of grace. I understand the five solos of the Reformation. I understand the basics of most books of the Bible. I understand this and that. I fall back on 2 Peter 1 where he says, I tell you these things again by way of reminder. And in the Bible, church, your greatest danger is to lose what Jesus called in Ephesus your first love. And that happens when you think you've heard it all and when you think you're filled up. You know what begins to happen? I've been pastoring for 25 years now. I've seen it a thousand times. What begins to happen is that church attendance begins to fall off a little bit. Your desire to hear the word falls off. The the ones that that used to be super attentive are now kind of just listening passively. That is a danger. And I would urge all of you, Listen to every sermon like it's your last one. And if it's exactly the same thing that you heard a month ago, then you know it was God's will for you to hear it again. Unity, priority, urgency, quantity, dignity, humility, receptivity. The church and Scripture stand or fall together. And if Scripture stands with us, we will stand and be effective for our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's be a church that embraces the Word of God. And we'll do this together until Christ returns. How about that? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You for this text. Oh, it's so inspiring. It's so convicting. None of us has any excuse to say that the sermon was too long or that, that the, the pastor preached two whole times on a Sunday or that church happens a, a whole one time a week or that I I barely made it to listen to my quota of three or four sermons this month. Lord, to see this people so hungry for the Word of God that they gave of their resources to build a a huge platform. They gathered together bringing their children and, and probably bringing food for the day. And then when the scroll of the Word of God was opened and when Ezra was getting ready to read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the people stood and they listened for hour after hour after hour. And so we have no excuse. Oh Lord, there are many churches with a sign that says "Bible Church. I pray that ours is true. I pray that we are a Bible church, a book of the a church of the the people and the book. Let that be our motivating. Uh, factor lord to push us toward the gospel ministry every one of us have a part to play our world just seems to be getting more and more evil and so the, the the spread of the gospel is all the more important and so i pray that lord we would be a church that constantly is filled overflowing with truth and with the grace of god through the knowledge of christ and then we would have a subsequent impact on our circle of influence lord And that you would grow your church by means of the filled-up believers overflowing with truth, eager to share with their friends and neighbors and family. Lord, we pray you would be glorified. We pray for Grace Bible Church. that It would always be a place, a people that prioritizes first and foremost the open word of God. May we be faithful until Christ returns. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.